It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Welcome everyone to Just a Moment. Turnaround stories don't come any bigger than the one you're about to hear. Matt Bell was a promising young athlete who dreamed of being a professional baseball player. But when an injury sidelined him at the University of Toledo, he found himself in a moment that thousands of people experience in our country every day. He became addicted to painkillers. That moment, that addiction, sent Matt into a downward spiral that nearly cost him everything, including his own life. This is the longest conversation I've ever released into a podcast. I could have edited portions out. I could have picked up the conversation later in his life, but I think it's important for you to hear step-by-step step, how Matt Bell went from being a loved, sheltered, private school student to a homeless drug addict on the streets of Toledo. It's a journey most of us can't understand when people talk about drug addiction. How does it happen? Matt gives a first-hand account of an issue that has become an epidemic in our country, and you may be shocked to hear how he's become part of the solution. I went to a small school out in Walbridge, way out. Uh, it was a private school. It's not even there anymore. There's probably 15 kids in my class. Very sheltered um, life coming up. Small towns, small schools. Life was really good, mom and dad. Uh, my father was, uh, he was in the Marines. And then he came home from the Marines, started working at Davis Bessey Nuclear Power Plant, and then he, um, he went to Toledo Edison, and that's where he eventually retired from Toledo Edison. He worked hard, he, you know, hard worker. Um, met my mom at some point in that process, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she babysat all the neighborhood kids, you know, and that's, you know, that's how she made a little bit of money. But my, for, the, for the most part, my dad was... Uh, he took care of our family and that's what he taught me. My dad was really big on um, being the man of the house, being um, a good person in the community. Like I just remember going to like grocery stores with him and um, like everybody was like, hi Roy. You know, everybody knew him, everybody, it didn't matter. Where he went, everybody knew him and he was just a nice guy and he never burned any bridges. You know, he was just like a really good guy that, that instilled a lot of like really good core morals and values in me that, um, I still hold on to today, but we're gone for a little while. We'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you Are your parents still alive, both of them? No, no. So my mom is, but my dad died when I was uh, a freshman in high school. So um, they actually got divorced in sixth grade when I was in sixth grade. And we were my sister and I were given the opportunity to, to decide which parent we wanted to go with. And I went with my dad. Uh, we had more stuff in common. Um, it wasn't anything that I didn't like about my mom. I love my mom to death. 
Um, but I just, I was young and I, I wanted to be with the, the guy that taught me how to fish and taught me how to, you know, play sports and stuff. So I went with my dad and um, we were together every minute of every day. I mean, like in those last couple years of his life, um, it was just him and I every single day. And we became very, very close. And he was diagnosed with cancer my freshman year of high school. Um, I mean, it was like a quick thing. It was very, very quick. So he was diagnosed, and I think a couple weeks later he was gone. Wow. Because they found it really late, and it had just spread. You know, he was in pain, and they kept just, you know, nothing's going on. You may have pulled a muscle or whatever it was, back pain. And they finally did testing like six months later, and they realized that it was prostate cancer and spread to bones, blood, brain. I mean, it was ca- it was cancer everywhere. He, he was just walking cancer. So at that point, it was just keeping him comfortable for the last couple weeks. And that was tough. That was really tough for me as a kid, you know, uh, that was really close to him uh, in freshman year of high school when life is all changing to see, like, your superhero and your best friend turn into somebody that was, like, your superhero to somebody that didn't even know who you were in two weeks. Um, and then just go. You know, I was there when he, when he died. He actually died on Father's Day. So it was just a freshman year for me was, it was a nightmare. It was a really tumultuous time. It was like a perfect storm, honestly, of the timing of it. You know, young guy going to an all-boys school that grew up in a really small town, knew the same, you know, 15 people for his whole life, and now was in this massive setting with more competition. And and by the way, we're going to take your 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 primary role model and, and father away. So it was it was a tough tough time. So I'm assuming you moved back in with your mom at that mm-hmm. point. Yep. Yeah. And you were going to St. Francis yeah. at the time. Yeah. 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 How did you process your dad's death and how did that impact you when you think about yourself as a person just kind of moving through life? Did you become quiet? Did you become angry? You know, like, yeah. I mean, were there any changes that you noticed, Matt? Yeah. So I didn't notice them at the time. To, to answer your question directly, I don't think that I processed it. Uh, I think that I masked it and didn't fully understand it so death even to this day for me when people die it's very uncomfortable and I think that it was that was the first time I really ever experienced somebody dying um it's a very difficult thing to to deal with you know and sometimes you see it young uh, younger in life sometimes you don't see it until you're an adult but um at that age the the concept of death and somebody that close to me dying was um I I didn't understand this when it happened but Later in life, when I went through treatment, I, I guess I viewed it as like an abandonment thing. And even though that's not what it was, I felt like, or my, my 14, 15-year-old brain processed it as the person that loves me the most, the only person I really have in this world left me. So now I guess I just need to control things and attach to things that can't leave me and that I can make sure are here, whether it's healthy or not. Um, and that's what I started to do immediately after he was gone. I started, I just clung on to things that weren't healthy. Um, and, and, you know, my mom was in a difficult spot too because she didn't know what was going to happen. Um, she was hurting, even though they were divorced, they, you know, she still loved them and they were yeah. friends. Um, and, and she was hurting for me. And, she, and my mom wanted to be my friend more than anything at that time. Um, she, she wasn't in a position uh, mentally to be the parent I think that she needed to be, you know, and she made decisions a lot of times, um, 
you know, I just remember like getting in trouble, you know, when I started drinking a couple of years, couple years later, there was like no consequences because mom was my friend instead of being mom, you know? So, uh, it was just, you know, again, it was a, it was a tough time for everybody, but you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't process it. And I just started to, to really make poor decisions and all those morals and values that he raised me with, you know, went out the window, like literally overnight. It was crazy. I remember, I remember, uh, like when he was alive, there was a, a lunch table of kids that I knew like smoked cigarettes. And I was like, I'll never sit at that table. I don't want anything to do with those people. I don't even want to be seen around them because I can be viewed as somebody that might be smoking with them, even though I'm not. And then like he died and I went to school the next week and I was like, I'm going to go sit with those kids. Like that was the first thing I just wanted. I just wanted to be accepted. You know, I felt so like alone at that point. Yeah. That was the easiest way for me to feel some sort of approval or attachment was the kids that were doing the bad things. So I just, I went and hung out with those kids. And it was just literally crazy how it changed overnight like that. Your your dad, you said he went really quickly, but did you have any conversations with him about what he wanted you to hold on to or about the fact that he was dying? I'm sorry, kid. You know, I mean, was there anything, any conversation between the two of you before he passed? I wish I could say that there was because that would just, I would... I would, I would, you know, I'd want to like document it, write it down, like reenact it somehow. Like it would be so great to be able to say that there was, but no, it was, uh, the things that I do remember, um, early on, he, you know, he, he knew like when he got the diagnosis, he knew the doctors told him, but he didn't have it within himself to tell me. And, you know, and it was just, you know, son, everything's going to be okay. They have to, they have to do some treatments here. They're going to transfer me to this, uh, transfer me to this place called hospice and, um, everything's going to be all right. No matter what, everything's going to be all right. And that was like, that's really the extent of the conversations. There was, there was never a, all right, it's time for you to step up and I'm going to be gone soon. You know, so we never had those conversations, but we did have a lot of those conversations earlier on in life. You know, I, I remember like, um, just like playing sports with him and stuff and like being on a field and, and, and leaving the game and him telling me, listen, that was awesome, but this is, there's a life lesson in this too, you know, and you made a great play, but then you didn't shake the guy's hand. You, you know, like, so there was just so many awesome life lessons and teaching opportunities that, that we had. I mean, I learned so much from him. I, I couldn't have asked for truly, I, I truly could not, if, if you could say, is there anything your dad didn't do for you to like teach you? I, I, I wouldn't be able to think of anything. Like he was the best dad that I, that I could ever ask for. And if I can be, if I can be half of that for my son, I'll feel like a, a rock star. Like that's how good of a dad he was. Your sister, you, she was living with you and your mom at this time too, or is, yep. was she older yep. than you? She's, she's two years older than mm-hmm. me. Yep. So my sister and I were complete opposites. So in, you know, growing up, I was the kid that, uh, straight A's, sports, preppy, like just very clean cut. And my sister uh, didn't do so well in school, um, did not play any sports at all. Uh, got into a little bit of trouble. Nothing crazy, though. Um, she was more of like the punk gothic scene, you know, just rock music and all that stuff. And, and it's just funny how like th- things changed. <laughs> like things changed so much after my, after my dad passed. But we were polar opposites, polar opposites. You're at St. Francis, and did you play baseball there all four years? Tell me about mm-hmm. the things you were involved in. Was it just baseball or other sports also? I played three sports at St. Francis. Uh, freshman year, 
Um, I played baseball and basketball. Sophomore year, the same. And then uh, junior and senior, I stopped playing basketball, but I started playing football. So junior and senior year, it was baseball and football for me. And you um, played what position in baseball? Baseball played shortstop, middle infield every once in a while. And I'd pitch in, in high school specifically, like I was a closing pitcher. Um, so, so we had our starters that would come out and get us to the seventh inning. And then I'd come in and, and blow everybody away with my what I thought was like a super fast fastball, but it really wasn't. You know, this was a high school fast fastball, 78 miles an hour or something, and I thought I was sweet. But but you must have been pretty good because yeah. you also got an opportunity to play at UT, right, at the University yeah. of Toledo. So yeah. tell me about that. How did that come about? Um, did you get a scholarship to play there? I did. Mm-hmm. I, I, got a full, I got a full scholarship to the University of Toledo. Um, it was uh, like 75% uh, athletic, and then the other 25% was... Um, Academic, as I graduated St. Francis with a 4.0, mm-hmm. so uh, so my college was covered. You know, it was, that was the dream come true. I got some other smaller schools, um, like Division two and three in different states, but um, you know, to be at a D1 school in my hometown where I still knew everybody and I was like close to mom, um, that's I, I just wanted to be at, at UT. So, and it's fun to have your people come watch you play too, Yeah, right? it was awesome. When, yeah, it was like, this is great. It was so exciting. So, you ended up getting hurt. Tell me about that. How old were you? How many years had you played? Were mm-hmm. you a freshman when you got injured? Yeah, it was towards the end of my first year in college. So, when I got to, when I got to college, um, I mean, so to, to back up a little bit, I, I started to like dabble with substances drinking and and things like that in in high school but never like to any detriment it was never a problem when I got to college um stopped everything I mean I was like I'm in college now I have an opportunity to go pro like the major leagues was my that was my only goal in life Mm. that's I loved baseball still do I love everything about it I love the strategy behind it I love the fact that it's like chess on a field you know every single pitch has a, has a purpose, and I um, I was like, I'm eating right, I'm sleeping right, I'm training right, I'm going to school, I'm you know I'm doing great in classes. I was in the best shape I've ever been in, and I was really like getting healthy and I just like the best. I was just the best form of a baseball player that I had ever been, and it was like just so cool to see me transform. I was like I was like shocked by myself and better than I thought I could ever be. I'm proud of yourself, I'm sure. I was so proud of myself. I mean, I was like, this is exciting if I just keep doing this. Like, I am going to make it pro. I know that. We have this, all colleges, I should say, have uh, scout day, like when the major league teams come out and kind of look at who's there. And so scout day freshman year, you know, there's all these major league scouts from all over the, all over the country up there watching us. And we, you know, we did our little scrimmage, yellow team versus the blue team. And I had the best day. I mean, we played a, a nine inning game. And I, I did so well. I mean, I hit a home run off of like our ace pitcher in front of all these major league scouts. I hit a triple to the right center wall. I drove a, a nice out, low outside fastball to, to right center. And I think I bunted for a single and got to show off my speed and made a, a few really nice diving plays at, at shortstop. Um, like it was just, I was like, <laughs> these pros are here. I'm a freshman. That's I'm doing right. all this stuff. I was, I was like, I'm going pro. And yeah. there were some teams that had talked to me and like nothing serious, you know, but hey, where are you from? Nice, 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 uh, nice plays out there, whatever, this and that. And Baltimore Orioles. I remember the guy from the Orioles was talking to me. 
Toronto Blue Jays. Um, it's just really exciting for, as a freshman, you know. Yeah, and you're thinking to yourself, and I have three more years, yeah, right, I'm to like, like get even better I'm here. Like, are you serious? <laughs> this is too easy. Uh, and then, you know, shortly after that, I hurt myself. Um, what happened? Just turning a double play. It was just we were out practicing. Nothing. There was no like collision or anything like that. It was just I dropped down and turned a double play, and I felt something pop. I was like, that felt a little bit weird. But I went back in and started to throw some more, and it just it didn't go away. So I uh, went and did the whole MRI thing, and they got me in quick over at Wildwood, and they said, yeah, it was a uh, tor- uh, torn rotator cuff and labrum. I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know how serious it was. I just thought, hey, nothing different than any sprained ankle I've ever had in my life. You know, get, get wrap it up. Let's go do a little procedure, and I'll be back in two weeks. You know, that's what I thought. And, and this was toward the end of the season of your freshman year? Freshman year, year yep. yeah. So um, you weren't missing a whole lot at the right. end of that season. Right. And so did you have surgery? I did, yeah. So went in and had a quick outpatient surgery, in and out in you know, two hours. I think I got there at like 8 a.m. and I was gone out of there by noon. Like I said, it was the end of the season, so there was a lot of things that I could have and should have been doing in the off season to like, even though we weren't having practices, like I should have been doing this and that and staying healthy and doing my own training. and. Um, but because I was hurt and, and, and honestly at that time I – uh, when I walked out of there, I had a bottle of 90 um, Percocets, and um, at the, you know they don't do that anymore. But that was the first time I had ever experienced any uh, like prescription pain pills, and I just remember taking the first one because they told me to. Like it, I should have, you know, I needed it. I just yeah. had a surgery, and and I just something something happened inside me about 15 minutes after it hit, and I was looking in the mirror, and I I said to myself, this is the best feeling I've ever felt. I want to feel like this every day. Mm. Like I said that out loud, I was like, holy, Mm. you know, this, I want to feel like this every day. This is so cool. That's what I thought. My shoulder didn't hurt, you know, Mm. it was just like, and it was more than that though. It wasn't that the pain was gone, like it was pure euphoria. It was the, it was the best feeling that I had ever felt. And I hear some other people talk about it, you know, when they have surgeries and they take it. And they don't experience that. They, they, it's too much for them or they feel nauseous or whatever. Some people are different. And for me, as healthy as I was and as, as stable as I was and how like truly set up for success as I was, there was something about it that I, I immediately fell in love with it. I mean, and some of the stuff I used to do in high school, like, you know, I'd, one beer is good. Three beers has got to be great, right? Like that was the whole... I guess, like, concept that I learned while mm. experimenting with stuff mm-hmm. in high school. I, I applied that same principle to these pain pills now. If one makes me feel this good, how how great am I going to feel if I take three? And that's, that was it. Like, that was it. The 90, 90 pills was gone in a week. And um, that was the beginning of the end of... The, the the life that Matt and his family have had created for him thus far like mm-hmm. that was that was it it is so interesting you say that because I fall in that other category about I I will go to any pains to not take mm-hmm. painkillers because sure. they make me feel so sick yeah um n- nauseous that sure. sort of thing I I I rather just take a couple Advil and hope for the best right um but there is a lot of research that shows that there are people who are predisposed to 
receiving those drugs in yeah. different ways, right? Yeah. So that's the, the first thing. At some point, the 90 pills runs out. Yeah. What happens then? So I remember, I remember it. Uh, woke up, uh, didn't take any for a day, slept very poorly, um, tossing and turning all night. Woke up and it was just like, oh, the worst feeling. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. I mean, look at that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, hot and cold, sweating, nauseous, throwing up, bones aching, skin crawling. It's just a really, you can't really describe it. You can't describe it. You know, if someone's never experienced it, they will never understand. It's like the flu times a thousand with this, like, this mental unease that just uh, needs and wants something. And you know what it is and you know it's going to make you feel better. Um, it's just a very strange feeling. I remember like Googling my symptoms and all these results came back as like opiate addiction and chemical dependency and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, no, no. I kept scrolling. I'm like, that's not me. That's not me. I just kept scrolling. And I was like six pages into Google and it all said the same thing. Why did you think that that wasn't you? I mean, when you're, when you're there yeah. and you know how it made you feel right. and you know that now they're gone and you're having these symptoms. Yeah. Is that just a denial that's 100%. going on? Yeah. That was just a, that was the epitome of denial. I was, there's no way I'm a, I'm a college athlete. I have a car, I have a cell phone. I have my own apartment. I'm not an addict. Like that, that's not me. I don't fall into that category. An addict is a, is a homeless person with a cardboard sign, you know, downtown. Like yeah. I know what addicts look like. That's not, I'm not an addict. When you were obviously, they get you into rehab pretty quickly, right? For your shoulder, did were you yeah. going to rehab at that yes. point so and I, yep. still taking the Percocets? Mm-hmm, yeah, so th- I did. They wanted me to be in there quickly, and I, you know, immediately started to manipulate the doctors. Ah, oh, it still hurts, and getting more pills. Not going to therapy the way that I was supposed to be. You know, I should have been in there four or five days a week. I probably sl- I was getting high and sleeping through appointments. I started missing school. Um, you know, there was like take home exercises with therabands that I was supposed to do at night, like outside of physical therapy, I was supposed to do like lateral raises and all this stuff. I wasn't doing that. I was high, nodded out on the couch. The arm just didn't get better. You know, it did not heal. It, it was intact. It was one, but it didn't get strong again. And I'd show up to practice, but I was showing up late now. Um, and it was, you know, people just started to say, I started to lose all this muscle mass that I had put on. Uh, my grades were dropping, like all these things. And everybody noticed it. Everybody noticed it. Did you not notice it? Um, I, I, I knew I was messing up, but I, I just, I blamed it on the injury. It's because my arm is hurt. It's not because of anything that I'm doing. These are, these are legitimate pills. I'm just taking them. Maybe a little bit more than what's prescribed, but still, they're legitimate pills from a doctor that I get at a pharmacy. They're, it can't be bad. That's like where my mind was at. Like mm-hmm. I know a lot of people say that, but that's really where my mind was at. And I'm not blaming it on... There's no blame, I don't think, to be placed. Mm-hmm. I, I made those decisions. But that is how I justified it in in my in my brain. You know. I well, I, and I think that's part of the whole opioid f- phenomenon in yeah. America, right? Is that there were doctors prescribing these, yeah. not knowing. I sure. mean, they themselves not knowing sure. how powerful and lawsuits yep. against the drug companies that were making them and yep. everything now. But then mm-hmm. we didn't know yeah. as much as we know now. 
But you were so focused when you got to UT on not drinking, eating right, working out, all of that. Did you not miss that? Did you miss it at all? Yeah, I did, but I, I definitely missed it. And I missed just the whole everything, like getting good grades and all that. I missed it. Um, but I, at that point, I was fully dependent on opioids. I mean, it, was, it wasn't really a choice anymore. Like when you have to do an opioid in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night to go to sleep, like it's kind of hard to go run five miles on the, you know what I mean? Like there was, there was no doing that. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't possible anymore. And it also wasn't possible for me to stop using because if I stopped using, I would have been in withdrawals for seven to 10 days and I couldn't be sick and go run five miles. You know what I mean? It was, I was in this spot where if I stop using, I'm screwed. If I continue to use, I'm just a little bit less screwed. So in my mind, I'm just going to keep using and I'll deal with it at some point when, you know, I, I didn't really know how big of a beast I was, I was, I was like fighting at that yeah. point. I was like, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Did <laughs> you talk to anybody about it? Did you tell no. anybody? Did the, the doctor ask you? Mm. Nope. Clearly, you kept asking for more drugs. Did they just keep giving them to you? Or at some point, they said, okay, look, you're, like, yeah. you're done with this. They, they cut me off. They cut me off at some point. Um, then I started purchasing them. Where? Where would you even get that if I, a doctor's not writing you a prescription? And how did you, a college boy from Toledo, yeah. know where to find them? Yeah. I think that's the, like I think about that, too. It's like if I would have been in that small school up in like four hours north in Michigan, I, I wouldn't have been able, like, I wouldn't have been able to find it. Maybe that, maybe I should have gone to that small school, but I knew everybody in Toledo, you know, and there was a lot of kids and people I partied with in high school. And I just remember reaching out to somebody. I was like, Hey, I, I know you used to mess around with these, those pills. Like, do you know where to get them anymore? And he's like, Oh yeah, right here. Here's a phone number. And mm-hmm. that's, it was easy. I mean, it was one phone, phone call, one phone call called. And that was like the first time I ever purchased a, a pain pill. And where are you getting the money? So from my dad's inheritance at that time, mm. when he when he passed, um, a lot of money came to me, and I didn't really touch it until until I needed to for pills. Mm. Started and I didn't I didn't mean I was a college athlete. I didn't have a job. My job was school and sports. So that was more than full time. So I just started spending a lot of money. You know, it was Percocets to start with, but then when I called my friend, he uh, introduced me to an OxyContin dealer. And those were at the time between fifty and sixty dollars a piece, mm. and I would do between five and eight a day. So I was spending, you know, a, a lot of money, a lot of money, probably five hundred dollars on average a day on pills. Obviously, the people around you know that something is not right. You mm. are not the Matt Bell that they know mm-hmm. when you are operating this way. Did yeah. anybody step in? Yes. Your mom, your coach, your yep. friends. Like, what are they saying to you? So friends, um, friends sort of cut me off. Like friends, local friends sort of cut me off. I isolated. I used the injury as a as an excuse to isolate from like the team. So mm-hmm. I'd show up to the minimal amount of stuff that I had to show up to, and then I would just stay away from them. Didn't socialize with them anymore. Didn't go out to eat how I used to. My family, I would you know they just didn't see me because I said I was it was oh I'm doing sports in school. Sorry, I don't have time. I was just hiding. I was really isolating because I didn't want them to catch me. My coach is. Did the you one. live on campus? Yeah, uh, not on campus. Very but, close to campus. I had okay. my own apartment. So you had your own place. Mm-hmm. My coach pulled me in the office one day, and he was like, "What's going on with you? Like, 
what's going on? And he, he didn't come out and say it, but like he said it without saying it. And I don't know what it was like in that moment. Um, like I had, I had been going back and forth. Should I, should I keep doing this? Should I not? Like at some point, they're, I'm going to get caught. Like they're doing random drug testing now for all these types of substances for the NCAA, not just drugs. But, um, you know, I, like three kids got pulled in to do a random NCAA test last week. I know my name's going to get pulled at some point. I don't want to be embarrassed. And I was like, Coach, um, I honestly just don't love this anymore. I just don't love baseball anymore. And I, I think I need to focus on school and my family. And I don't think I want to play anymore. And he was like, he's like, Matt, stop. You're a liar. Like, what are you talking about? You don't love baseball. You don't just stop loving baseball. That doesn't happen. And and that's that was all I could think of at that time because I felt like I was cornered and I was about to get caught. And I was like, I'm sorry. I just I don't want to play anymore. Mm. And he was like, Matt, if there's something going on, we can help you. Like, we've seen this before. We have things in place to get you help. You're, you're not going to... He, like, tried to say as much as he possibly mm-hmm. could to get me to be like, okay... Without accusing yes, you exactly. of something. He tried, yeah. he tried. He tried his best. And they all could see it. And I was just like, no, there's nothing going on. Life's great. Life's great. My, my shoulder just isn't healing. And it's going to be really hard for me to ever go pro again. And I just figure I might as well just focus on, like, getting a job and um, just being a normal person now. In your heart, though... You wanted to be in the major leagues. Like, are you are you dying while you're saying this? Are you just not caring because the drugs are more important? Like, what is happening to that dream that you had to play baseball at at that time? Everything that you just said, I was dying inside. That was it was a bold faced lie. I mean, I was just straight up lied to him. Um, and yeah, dying inside, and 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 I knew I was giving up something that I should have been doing. Like. It wasn't in my mind and even now knowing more about like what it takes to get to that level. Like it's a very small, like not many people do it. A lot of people want to and it doesn't matter. Like just making it to college isn't enough. You know, mm-hmm. like a very small percentage of people make it to the majors. I, I would, I, I was 100% going to go pro. Like it wasn't a, a matter of if, it was a matter of when. So I gave that up. Like, it breaks my heart to think about, I should have been a Major League Baseball player. You know, like, I could have done that. I, 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 it just so, I don't know. It's a regret that I will always have. I should have just said, yeah, I need help. Very simple. I remember cleaning out my locker and, you know, my name on the, the plate there and, like, taking all my stuff out and turning in um, jerseys. And, like, I went out to my car and looked at the clubhouse and just cried. <laughs> cried like a, like a baby. So I was like, that's I, I, all I have now is pills. Like, I'm, I'm like fighting this thing that is, I don't even understand. Like, I don't even understand anything about addiction yet. I'd never gone to treatment yet. All I knew is I needed it every day. And if I didn't have it, it was a terrible physical sickness. And um, it was just this, I was battling this thing all alone that nobody knew about. And I was afraid. I was afraid and I like saw my life just going down a really dark path. Do you wish that some, I mean, would there have been a way for somebody to be more forceful with you in that moment or more direct or more handcuff you to them and drag you down to the rehab? I mean, could somebody have done something for you in that moment? Because I know there will be a lot of people listening to this who say, 
I've, I've been there or maybe they're dealing with it right now and don't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that just in general, it's, it's never a bad thing to just be direct and like call out the elephant in the room. I think that if, now obviously there's good ways to do that and not so good ways to do it and settings in which to do it in and things like that. But if your intentions are pure and you're coming from a place of love for that person, there's really no harm in calling somebody out and dancing around it and trying to, you know, hey, is anything going on? No, listen, I noticed something's going on. I think that you're struggling with something. What is it? You know, I, I think that and, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not placing the blame on him. Right. Like, there's nothing he could have done wrong. I know he wanted to help. And it's, it's such an uncomfortable topic. It's such a difficult conversation to have. But those, those difficult conversations are the ones that we need to have the most. Like, if, if you know someone or love somebody that, that you believe is struggling with something, like, just straight up bring it out and address it head on. Talk about it. Talk about it. And... I know you can't say with any kind of certainty, Matt, but if somebody, if your mom, if the coach, if, you know, one of your friends had just said, dude, I know you're addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. Like, let's get you help. Mm -hmm. Did anybody ever say that to you or, and would that have helped if they did? See, and that's the thing. Yes and no. So at that time, no, nobody said it because I was still in a position to where I could use other things that I had going on in my life as an excuse. With mom, I still had college, right? Like, so I didn't have to go around mom. With college, I still had my mom or my injury. So it was like, I could, I, but at some point, like all those things were gone. I wasn't in college anymore. I didn't, I didn't have school to go to. I didn't have sports to play. I didn't have a job. So like now I'm just stuck back at mom's house and mom starts to notice stuff when you're not doing anything else and you're staying home all day and you're sleeping on the, like, it's hard to, place blame anywhere else now and that's when things started to like come out um so how what how long of a time was that from your original injury when you first started taking the percocet until you were living with your mom again and she's starting to notice my son is not right well so i stopped playing and then i i pretty much just stayed in that apartment at and switched to heroin um uh, oxycontin uh, I remember I, there was a day that Oxycontin, um, back in 2007 this was, there was these doctors that were just writing scripts. Like there was, they weren't yeah. even like legitimate. It was just come in, pay me $500, I'll write you a script. And people were doing that. Um, it was just like pill mills is what it was. So pills were easy to find until those pill mills got shut down. I mean, they all got shut down by the FBI like in a day in a large like coordinated sting and then all of a sudden there was no pills so um so is that where you were getting your pills from from, from some, one of those from places? one of those people that was getting the scripts from those pill mills mm -hmm. so and that person was selling to me and all my you know all these friends that i had and we were all addicted we'd all like go and put our money in and like get pills together and i had my dad's money so i had a lot of friends yeah <laughs> you know i had a ton of money so everybody was hanging out with me um so then those get shut down and we're all sick. It's like, okay, let's divide and conquer. Let's all try to find somebody. Call everybody you know. Let's try to find something. And, we'll, and one of the guys came back and was like, hey, we got something that's like like pills. It's still like an opiate. It's going to make us feel better. I hear it's stronger and it's cheaper. Let's try it. You know, and I was like, whatever. I don't even care what it's called. I just don't want to be sick anymore. We were, we were all throwing up and 
curled up in, in balls and it was just terrible. So we went and got some and that was the first time I did heroin and it was uh, like I never went back to pills. Even if pills would have come back, even if you could have given me a hundred pills, I never would have done it again. It's just like it, it's like stepping up to I don't know if you were living in an apartment and then you moved out here, you know, like why would you ever want to go back to a small apartment again? It's just so different. Mm-hmm. It's so much. It just it's 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 little league compared to the pros. You knew it was heroin. Yeah. After yeah. How do you take it? It wasn't in a pill form. How do you take it? I was shooting it up. I was mm-hmm. injecting it. I was actually already injecting um, the pills. You were at that time. Yeah. Yeah. We started injecting um, after I stopped playing baseball. I started why? Shooting it up. Um. Like what's the difference between shooting it up and taking the pill, I guess? So, so I, I, I was taking the Percocets. When I went to Oxy, we started snorting them. Okay. So, so somebody said it, it gets you higher if you snort them. And then again, somebody said, hey, we can inject these things. Um, we sat there and watched a video on YouTube on how to cook Oxycontin, oh how to draw it up in a syringe, and how to inject it into your vein. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like, honestly, I think about it now, it's like, that is so dangerous. We had no clue what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Injecting something into our bloodstream, and we didn't even know. I mean, how much, you know, like just all these these variables where we could have just, we could have all died. That we, had, we were just like, hey, let's watch a YouTube video and shoot up together. Um, but, you know, I never snorted anything again after I started shooting up Oxy. And then I carried over shooting up into heroin. Um, but I shot up heroin and it was like, it was like falling in so love with it all over again. So do you buy it in a pill form and heroin? manipulate it or how, yeah, how do you, or how do you buy it? Heroin's sort of a, uh, well back then it was actual heroin. It wasn't fentanyl like it is now. So it was like a powdery, jelly, sometimes it would be in like a tar, if you can think of like a really thick resin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a sticky paste almost. Um, and then sometimes, depending on how it was processed, wherever it was processed, um, sometimes it would be in like a powdery form too. But either way, you would put it in a spoon or some some sort of metal thing to cook it in and add water, put a flame under it to melt it down into the water. And uh, then you take a tiny little piece of cotton, like a cotton ball, a tiny little piece, and put it in there to act as a filter. And you, you put the needle tip into the filter and draw up the heroin into the needle and the, the little cotton ball filters out any you know impurities or any anything that you shouldn't be injecting i mean it's just such so, a like where do you get syringes where do you like where are you getting this stuff to do this uh, i wouldn't even yeah. know where to buy a syringe right i know um yeah there was certain pharmacies you know and we'd get we'd learn all the tricks you know i'd go in and say my grandma needs her insulin syringes mm. 29 gauge, you know, one cc with a long tip. You know, I'd like learn. She takes Humalog or whatever, make up an insulin name. So we would learn the games. Mm-hmm. And sometimes pharmacies would say no, and sometimes they say yes. But you know, or you could order it online. You can order a box of 500 syringes for thirty dollars. You know, or you, there was so local pharmacies are just ordering it online. And you're super smart and you're super resourceful already from growing, you know, from your childhood, from your experiences, yeah. you know, whatever. So you're kind of figuring this all out. So you were living in the apartment with some other people mm-hmm. that were also doing this. Mm-hmm. And yep. at some point you went back to live with your mom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the money was gone now. You know, mm-hmm. I got evicted from the apartment. How much parent. money are we talking about? Did you uh, spend? It was, it was a little under it was like $140,000 yeah. and I spent that in no more than a year 
Does it just make you sick now to it like does. think about that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. I think about $150,000 now, in, completely different. <laughs> in the moment when you're spending that money and watching the bank account dwindle down, was there any thought to, man, I'm spending a lot yeah. of money here. Yeah. Did you think about that? Yeah, it was a very, I think about it, I'm thinking about it right now and what it felt like. It was like, oh my gosh, there's only $10,000 left. Like, this is this is good for a month and a half left. Like, what am I going to do? What's next? I don't have money for rent. I don't have money for gas. I don't have money for food. And I definitely don't have money for drugs. Like, what am I going to do? I am coming to a, 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 a dead end here. What's next? Had Just, you totally quit school also? Yes. You, yeah. So yeah. you no more school. Nothing. No more athletics. No more nothing. Just nothing. sitting around. I mean, did you just sit around your apartment all day and mm -hmm. get high? Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to get a, you know, a few jobs here and there. Like, I think I delivered for Jimmy John's to make an extra, like, 50 bucks a night or something. But that didn't last long. You know, I was, I was, I was dealing with a, a serious habit at the time. So whether it was because of tardiness... Or um, falling asleep at the job, or stealing tips, or you know, like I, any little side gig that I had did not last long. Were you thinking ever this is not the life I imagined mm -hmm. for myself? I mean, would you think about that mm -hmm. as you're living this way? All the time. It was it was a very um, depressing state of existence. You know, like I was so sad that just like less than 365 days prior. I was, I had a really good amount of money, a nest egg that I could have just let sit there for when I was, I could have just let it sit there and done whatever I wanted to do with it for four years later when I graduated. You know, just all these things that I had let go of, that I gave away. I just gave them away. And, and it was very depressing. I mean, like true depression. It was and very, probably some self-loathing and all, all of that all, stuff, right? Like you're in, you're a loser. You're, all I mean, yeah, are time. you thinking badly of yourself? Yeah, I hated myself. Truly hated myself. I was like, whatever happens, honestly, at this point, I don't care. Just, I really didn't care. It became very defiant. Um, started fighting a lot. Like, I, you know, going to bars and stuff. And just, like, would, like, swing on people for no, no like, you say, look look at us wrong or look at me wrong. or sit, Like, I just get into fights. Like, just became this very rebellious, not person, not the same person I was, like, ever raised to be or even wanted to be. Like, I just didn't care anymore. And you moved back in with your mom. Yeah. So after so after the after the house was gone, I had zero dollars left to move back in with mom, and that's when I started committing crime. I started stealing from her, um, borrowing from. Well, I borrowed first. And when the borrowing wasn't an option anymore, then I would steal, um, because you know. And I think that a lot of people steal from their families first because they they believe they won't press charges or take legal actions, which she didn't. Um, at that time, she didn't. When I couldn't steal anymore and when it, you know, when... when Did she know what you were stealing for? Did she yeah, know what you yeah. were borrowing for? At this point, At she point knows she you have an addiction. At that point, she did. I mean, it was like, it was so obvious that I had to start. Um, I remember telling her, and she didn't know what it was either, you know. She was like, okay, yeah, let's let's go get you help. Well, let me call Uncle Ray. My Uncle Ray, like, took me up into the woods of Michigan somewhere on a camping trip for four days and, you know... I was supposed to be fine when I came home. Like, nobody knew what addiction was. They just thought that if they took me away from the drugs for four days, that when I returned, everything would be fine. And, and you know, the minute I got back, I went and got more heroin. Um, Were you without drugs for four days? Yeah. 
That was that was the first time I ever like truly detoxed from heroin in the in the woods in Michigan in a in a tent. What was the withdrawal like from that? <laughs> that was that was the worst. That was the worst um, detox experience I think I've ever had. I mean, I've gone cold turkey many times in jail and things like that, but being in a tent out in nature, like with nothing around, it was. I mean, it was just, like I said, withdrawing, now withdrawing from heroin, which is stronger than the pills. I mean, it is just, I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but it was disgusting. I mean, it was like truly, when you see it on TV, like a person like rocking back and forth and shaking and pale skin and sweating and throwing up and and can't control their bowels. You can't eat anything. Um, Everything hurts. You can't sleep. Um... Like when I got clean this time, finally, um, six years ago, I didn't sleep for the first 23 days. Like it took me 23 days to fall asleep at night. Now, granted, my body would like shut down during the day and I would like pass out for 20 minutes here and there. But truly saying, okay, it's time for me to lay down and then like fall asleep on my own 23 days. Like it's just miserable. Withdrawal symptoms are the worst thing. It is the, and that's why it's so hard for people to stop because you know, you can just go get $5 worth of the drug again and and be immediately like back to normal it's not even getting high anymore it's just being back to normal after the four days were you still sick at the end of the four days yes okay yeah, yeah. so you, there was no point like the whole drive back you're probably thinking who am i gonna call when the, i get home the right? entire time yeah. the entire time i was thinking about it i had gotten through probably like the bulk of the worst parts of the withdrawals but those the post-acute withdrawals is what they call them it kind of it lasts for weeks and I mean, I was still not sleeping. I was, I was ready to. I just wanted to be well. Just wanted to get another one. So, but I started to get, and I was like, again, committing crimes, stealing from little places here and there. And I think I got arrested once or twice for like small things. So my mom started to know, you know, it's, you couldn't really hide it anymore. I've borrowed, I've stole from you. I've gotten arrested once or twice, and I went camping to detox with Uncle Ray three months ago, and I'm still doing all these things like. Yeah, it's happening, Mom. Did she ever say to you, I'm finding a rehab for you or anything like that? Yeah, she would try. You know, it was Compass at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom just really didn't know. I feel she was no different than I, like every single parent that I talked to. Nowadays. I was just going to say, I don't think any of us know. Yeah. I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. It's, I it's would a, maybe call a doctor's office and say, what seriously. do I do? And probably a lot of them don't really know what to yeah. do about that. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult... Um, it's become more simple now just because of the heightened, you know, epidemic. But back then, I can't imagine how hard it was for her to, like, n- just not know, not be educated, not know that you can, like, call and talk to places. But then also the resources. Like, there was one place in town mm-hmm. with a limited amount of beds, and it took six months to get into. You know, like, what do you do? You know, you don't have the funds to go pay for a private insurance place in Malibu or something that, that cost $50,000 for a month or um, and I wasn't on health insurance on her I was you know I was old I was old enough to be an adult I wasn't on her health insurance anymore so um, it was just it was a tough place to be for for her I didn't think of it like that but now looking back like I just feel so bad for her she didn't yeah. she didn't know what to do well, and we, you know, also because you have a son that we love our kids and we would do anything for them, and that Absolutely. that is a hard a hard place to be. But eventually, obviously, you couldn't stay with her. Did she kick you out? Yeah. Or yes, eventually. What? So that's when I started to go to like um, 
court-ordered rehabs. Like I would get arrested. Mom stopped bailing me out now. Like mom was starting to learn a few things, starting to. Um, like she'd ask questions to people at the treatment centers now that I would go to. Um, I think I got into my first treatment center at Compass through a court program. And she made some contacts there and they kind of like educated her on what to do. And she got stronger as time went on. Like she learned how to say no. I, I ended up going down to Florida for a treatment center. Somebody that I knew uh, had a program down there and they gave me a free 30 day stay. All I had to do was pay for my flight. It was a, a friend, a friend of a family member. And um, so it was like I would stay clean for the next 10 years. This is what the next 10 years looked like. It was me going into a rehab, staying clean for 30 days to maybe six months, um, going back out there, relapsing. The relapse would only last for a month or so because it would get bad really quick again. I would be committing crimes to fund my addiction, and then I'd get arrested again. And that that process happened over and over and over again for the next 10 years. Do you know how many times you were arrested? 13 times. And Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio. In between now, uh, in between these rehab stints and in between these uh, jail stays, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're living where? Um, halfway houses. So I did, I did, uh, halfway houses in all of those states that I said, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Mom would let me back every once in a while. Those were halfway houses, um, you were released to from jail or from recovery? From recovery. Mm -hmm. So I'd like complete like an inpatient portion for a week or 30 days or something. And then they would set me up with a place to go afterwards. Um. And that's being paid for by? Mom, mom. At the beginning, would pay for it. She'd say, okay, I'll pay for the, you know, you, you got to get a job, but I'll cover the fees or whatever it is. It might have been, I don't know, uh, three or $400 a month. She'll, she'll cover it for the first three months. But after that, you're on your own, and you have to get a job and start paying. And sometimes I would, and it would last a month, and sometimes I wouldn't. And I just know that here's the last day that mom's covering. I'll just go out on that day. I always knew that I could lean back on mom for something, whether that was her funding it, or if I completed it and did well, I could manipulate her to say, listen, mom, I know you didn't want to pay anymore, but I don't have a job yet. So can I just come home? Let me just stay on your couch. You know, and it was always like she would, she's my mom, you know, yeah. I'm her baby, no matter yeah. how old I am. Right. She can't let me be homeless. She can't let me be hungry. She can't let me be sleeping in the snow. You know, like it was just, she would always against her judgment say, yes, I'll, I'll take care of it, Matt. I'll take care of it until until she didn't, you know, and that's, that's when things got really, really hard. What happened then? Uh, towards the end, you know, homeless, homeless for the last like year and a half in East Toledo. Um, that was just the worst stretch for me. I would, uh, there was no, like, there was no period of sobriety there. It was just a year and a half of straight being homeless, committing crimes, getting arrested, you know, Every three months, I would do three to five days in jail. Then they'd let me out, and I'd go straight back to it. I might try to walk into a local treatment center or a hospital and um, get you know a few hot meals and a shower for a couple of days, but then I'd go right back out. Like There was no... There At was, this point, you kind of knew how to game the system, too. I knew all, everything. Right? I knew all of like, it. Yeah. I knew all of it. It was just a really bad year and a half. Like I, I That was the lowest point for me. It was just nobody anymore. I mean, when I say homeless, like, I'm not sleeping on someone's couch and bouncing around. Like, nobody talked to me anymore. 
everybody wrote me off. I was a filthy, I mean, just didn't shower for months, didn't brush my teeth, didn't didn't even have a phone. Like I was a home, like the typical homeless person that you think of, the person that I envisioned when I saw addict on mm-hmm. the on on the Google I'm results. Beautiful. That's what I became. Um, you know, picking up cigarette butts and smoking them, asking people for change, um, not caring, like pulling purses off of people's shoulders, just, just, a, just a menace to society. Like truly, somebody that I was like, I'll be better off if I'm not here, one way or another. Like I should just go to prison for a long time, or hopefully I die. That's what I. That's you what didn't I, care if you died. I didn't care. I knew that would be best. That would be the easiest way out for me, and the world would be a better place if I was gone. I remember being on Star and White and watching somebody put gas in their car. And I was like, wow, that person has a car. They have license plates. Like, I remember it, like, very vividly. Like, man, I wonder, I forget what it's like to, like, what do you do to get a license? And a license plate and insurance on a vehicle and have money on a debit card to put $5 into your gas tank. I remember watching this person in East Toledo, just like a normal guy coming home from work or something. And I was like, dang. That's not me. It never will be. I'm going to die out here. I, like It was one of the most... I have the intersection of star and white tattooed on my stomach because it was such a moment in my life. Um, wow. Like I accepted the fact that I was going to die an addict on star and white that summer day in, in, in 2015. And at that point, it was just like, okay, well, nobody cares about me anymore. Like I've truly screwed up my life so much now um i have a son that i don't get to see um i've completely neglected him he's a year and a half old i i like just okay so how can we go back to that just a moment so you you actually did have a period where you were able to maintain a relationship obviously relationships fall by the wayside but you did have a relationship you did Mm -hmm. have a son yes Okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a what I what we call it in the industry. It was a rehab romance, and um, not a not a good thing at all. Um, I was clean for, you know, maybe sixty days, and we had a lot in common. <laughs> Thought we loved each other, and. Um, she also an addict. She was in yes, yeah, she was in mm-hmm. recovery. Mm-hmm. Didn't go to the extent of of her life. Never went to the places that that mine did. Mm-hmm. Um, she addressed her issue very early on. And, um, you know, she's a great person, great mom, mm-hmm. uh, great person today, doing very well. But that's where we met. Thing, one thing led to another, and we, we had a child very quickly, and we ended up getting married. And um, it was just, it was a, it was a, we had a child and, and got married because we had a child. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even know, like, what being an adult was yet. I was still going through, like, treatment and stuff, you know? Just a rushed thing. She was able to stay sober and you did yeah. not. Correct. Yeah, she stayed sober. What was it that, I mean, 60 days is a pretty good stretch there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, from where you've been. Yeah. So you've gone through all that hard work mm-hmm. for two months. What was it that drew you back? I was, I didn't go, there was, a, there was other instances too in that 10 years where I might not go right back to heroin, but... I'm still going to drink and I'm still going to smoke and I'm still going to do cocaine on the weekends and I'm still going to like, I'm still going to party. So it, there was not really, it wasn't really recovery. No, I it wasn't was recovery sober. from heroin maybe, but Correct. not from the other stuff is Correct. what you're saying. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, okay. And to, 
to her, she was like, okay, he's doing well. You know, he's still got a job. He's still helping, you know, pay for things with, with our child. Um, we have this apartment together. And it was just a matter of time. Like, every time I did that, I ended up going back to heroin. And, and I did one day. I forget. I don't even remember why. I was just like, hmm, that sounds really nice today. I'm going to go over to the east side and find somebody that looks like they might know where heroin is. Mm. And, I, and that's what I did. I literally just parked my car on East Broadway and waited for somebody to walk by. Um, that looked like you used to look. Yeah. And I was like, hey, you know, do you know do you know where to get anything around here? They're like, yeah, what do you need? I mean, it was like that easy. And I was like, yeah, I want heroin. I'll pay for yours if you help me get some for me too. And they were like, really? That's nice of you. Let's go. <laughs> so that's how easy it is to find heroin. I mean, I was, that's all you got to do. Just go over there and ask somebody for it. And that's where... She found you, out quick. Yeah. She found and, out so and quick. And you split up, and now you're living literally on the streets after yeah. that. Yeah, she yeah. found out so quick. I mean, literally, when she found out, she, I mean, she knows what that looks like. When you live that lifestyle, you know what it looks like. She she found out very quickly, and five minutes later, she was gone with our son um, and, like, filed for divorce already. Like, it was that quick. It was, like, kudos to her for doing that. Mm-hmm. I was heartbroken at the time. But that's the best thing she could have done. Like, truly a protective, amazing mother. And I'm sure it was hard for her also being in recovery to, you know, think to herself, if I don't get away from it, I might be dragged down. I could have. I could have done that. I mean, it could have very easily gone in a lot of different directions to where our son could be completely parentless right now. So, Matt, you're living on the streets. I mean, are you sleeping under bridges? Are you sleeping mm-hmm. in abandoned buildings? All you know, on the police shows, we see them walking into, you know, crack houses, lifting people's heads up, looking for people they're trying yeah. to find. Is that you? Yeah, absolutely. All of that stuff. I'd sleep wherever I could. Um, buildings, bushes, under buildings. I remember sleeping under someone's front porch, like in a house that had a porch, people living in it. I slept under it. I was just walking at night, and I was really tired and saw a little hole that I could crawl into, slept under their porch. That's just where I, I stole over there. I committed crimes over there. I, I found money over there, and I, um, I got my drugs over there. And I just existed over there for a solid year and a half to the point where you know, I, I got to the end, and I was just like, Mom, can I please, please, please sleep in your garage tonight? Please. It's really cold. <laughs> I'm going to die out here. And she told, she said, Matt, if you step on my property, I'm calling my police. I'm calling the police. Uh, you'll always be my son, but you're no longer my child. And, and I was just like, okay, well, that's it. Doesn't matter. Like, my mom doesn't care if I die and survive this cold night. So I'm going to show her. I'm just going to kill myself. Like, it, like that whole star and white intersection thing. And that was all very um, close in, in timeline. So I'm, I, I wanted to kill myself. I, I stole a gun from somebody that I was using with. And uh, I went into my mom's garage. She was a waitress at the time. And I went into her garage. And I was like, okay, you, you don't want me to be in your garage and safe? Then I'm, you're going to come home from work tonight and you're going to find your son in your garage dead. And um, that was my sick plan. I got to the, I used the rest of the drugs I had, put the gun in my mouth. It was like I still taste the gun today. I'll never forget the taste of a gun in your mouth. And I just, just like screaming and crying and wanted to be gone. But I, the only reason I didn't pull the trigger is because I, I love my mom too much. Like I just couldn't let her come home. 
I just thought of my mom like wiping down tables, you know, serving other people all day, and then coming home and finding her son with with his brains blown all over the, her grass. Like I could not do that to her. I couldn't do it. That's the only reason I didn't do it. Like, if I would have been in another garage, I probably would have done it. But um, I called the cops. You called them yourself. <laughs> yeah, right then and there, I called the cops. I what did you say? I said I've broken into my mother's house. I'm not allowed to be here. I am a convicted felon, and I have a gun. I have drugs, and I have fugitive warrants in three states right now. Please come arrest me. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, these people from DART showed up. DART, the drug abuse response team, showed up. And they were like, all right, man, That's what's... Lucas County Sheriff program, yeah. right? Yeah, Lucas County Sheriff's Office, DART unit. They had just gotten started. They mm-hmm. had two officers at that time. It was a program that uh, Sheriff Tharp put into place to, to kind of humanize law enforcement and combat the epidemic. Instead of arresting people, they, they would show up and get people into treatment instead of jail. And I don't know if it was the 911 dispatcher was like, something doesn't sound right about this. Let's give this one to Dart or what it was. But Dart showed up instead of the police. And they were like, what's going on, man? And I'm like, I, I told him everything. It's like, I am a heroin addict. Take me to jail. <laughs> take me to take me to jail and let's expedite the whole process. I'll plead guilty. Send me to prison for a long time. Like, I'd never been sent to prison yet. Mm-hmm. I was like, just put me away for 10, 20, 30 years. I don't care. Like, I, rehab doesn't work for me. Homelessness doesn't work for me. Suicide isn't even an option at this point. I can't, I can't muster up the courage to do that. Just lock me up. Like, I really thought that that was maybe the next best thing. That was my next bright idea. And he was like, nah, man, that's not how it works. We're going to Zeph. And I was like, no, dude, I've done Zeph. I've done it all. I've been in treatment now 27 times. This would have been my 28th time in treatment. And, um, He's like, yeah, dude, whatever. We'll take care of the warrants later. You're going to treatment. He took me to treatment, got me a burger on the way, um, let me smoke a cigarette in his car. I was smoking cigarettes at the time. And that was a moment. You know, that was one of those moments where I was like, I should be being put in a cage where I am not allowed to walk out. Like, I should be being told when to shower. Something, something greater than me, don't know who it is, where, where he's at, what his or her name is but there's something looking out for me and I am not supposed to to be in a cage like I need to take advantage of this opportunity and went to sleep that night I was still kind of high and I woke up the next day and I just had a different perspective on the detox process it wasn't okay I'm gonna be sick it was okay this is gonna make me stronger like I will get through this and I just held on to that through detox I was sick as a dog but knew that it was going to get better every single day. And I just kept trying to find positives in everything. 27 times you had been to rehab, Matt, and mm-hmm. it hadn't worked. Was it because you were kind of gaming the rehab system? You weren't in the right mind to actually be there and be helped? Yeah. Uh, you know, like what was it about the 28th time and this, like, where did this perspective come from? And what was it about that time that just made you mm-hmm. say, I'm really going to give it my all this time? Um, the, the first 27 times, it was always, I, I, had, I had a shoe print on my rear end from somebody else that was kicking me into treatment. It was a judge. It was mom. It was a girlfriend. 
Um, it was it was somebody, my probation officer, like somebody somebody was like, you need to get help, Matt. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that to appease you and not go to jail. There was always somebody else wanting me to do it. And, um, you know, this time was the first time nobody said, you need to go do this. This is the first time. Now, granted, I didn't want to go to rehab. I wanted to go to prison. But still, it was the first time that I was like, something has to change. Like, what I'm doing, Matt's way, isn't working anymore. I need to do, I need to do something different. And it was that coupled with the fact that I had never been to such a place of hopelessness before. And, like, the fact that I was even considering suicide, it was so scary to me because I loved life so much. I was raised, like, I loved, I've, I've had a good life from, from birth, you know. And then it was just this terrible decade of of negativity but like I never lost that love and like good things that happened in my life and I I did not want I, the fact is I did not want to die you know like I really didn't want to I thought I did but like I just love life I love people too much I love I love sunshine I love food I love like there's just too much to love about life and um, the thought the fact that I was thinking about that I was like okay like, the next step is I'm going to pull the trigger. Like, I have to do... This is serious now. You know, like, I've asked for help. I was going to commit suicide. Nobody talks to me anymore. Like, I got nothing. It was just a very... All my cards read zero. And it's like... And that was the first time it had been that serious. So, that was the difference. It was a very different approach going into treatment that time. How long was your rehab? I stayed in treatment for nine months. Um, and I would have stayed longer if I Is could, that the uh, longest that you had ever been in a treatment program? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the longest I think I ever stayed before was like 60 days at the very, very most. So, like I said, I, I loved it. I loved treatment. And it was weird. Like, I'd wake up in the morning, and even though I didn't sleep good the night before, you, you know, I'd be like, okay, we get to go to group today. I get to go, like, learn something about addiction and relapse prevention mm-hmm. and trauma. And, like, I get to go learn about this. And every, every other time it was like, Oh, I have to wake up and go to group today. I'm like, no, I don't have to. I get to. Like, I was so excited. I'd go in and I was participating and I was listening and I was reading and I was doing the assignments and asking questions and like, just I was so focused. The same way I did school my freshman year, you know, like with the same zeal mm-hmm. and energy and approach and, and effort. And I just, I was like, I'm getting everything I can out of this. And then I'd go back to my room and instead of like. You know, doing all the little, playing video games like everybody else was. Like, I was reading about how addiction affects your brain and the disease concept and and and, and the healing process and different ways to heal and holistic approaches and spirituality and all this stuff, you know. And, and I was just like, it was just, I just, every moment that I was awake, I was learning about how I can not go back out there again. That's what I was trying to equip myself with. So were you an inpatient for mm-hmm. nine months? So it was detox was for seven days. And then I went to a recovery housing setting mm-hmm. where like the first, I want to say maybe 60 days was, it was a lockdown. You're at housing and you don't get to leave unless you're going to group therapy, which mm-hmm. is like right down the street. Mm-hmm. So you, it was almost like school. You live in this house, it was a big dorm style setting. And then we're going to take you to school right down the street. You're there from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then you'll come home and, you know, there's chores and activities and nightly meetings and stuff like that. Um, 
And eventually, I don't know if this was part of your rehab, but you actually started helping with support groups and, you know, different um, programs for people who were in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, and where did that come from? What, I mean, it's interesting that somebody, was it because you knew where they were coming from? Yeah, yeah. You felt like you had something to offer them? Absolutely. There was, there was a, you know, sports, baseball, high school sports, the whole team concept of every single person has a significant role, whether you're the starting quarterback or you're the warm-up catcher. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. everybody, like the warm-up catcher is warming up the starting pitcher. So like that warm-up catcher is just as important as the starting pitcher. And it's important. So like that whole team concept, I never forgot that. I, I learned that it was really ingrained in me at St. Francis and, and then UT. And I was like, let me try. Like since I can't play baseball anymore, you know, it, it sucks. But let me try to like make some sort of team concept out of this. Like. Let's all do this together. Let's find who has skills at certain things. And I don't need to be good at what he's good at because he's good at what he's good at. And I'll be good at what I'm good at. And so we started to like find, you know, different assets that everybody had. And um, we just started like carrying out little tasks. We would put our hands in a huddle like a team. It's a like team recovery because we were in recovery. It was a joke, you know, but we were like, what do, what do we want to do? Should we speak at schools? Should we like, what are these other places not doing first? Like, let's reverse engineer this and figure out what we can do to, to still kind of address some needs. Mm -hmm. Like we've done all this stuff in our lives, maybe for a reason. Maybe this negative can be turned into a positive. And maybe we can help some people that are still struggling because it's a really tough system to navigate like we were talking about. So what needs to be done? Family support, because nobody ever talked to my mom. Mm -hmm. So so let's do, let's do family support. Education, like I don't remember anybody coming in and talk to St. Francis. So let's do prevention work. And let's just like be a phone number. Let's get a free phone number and answer it at all the time, all the time, and like tell people where to go and or just like listen to them and help them, like answer their questions. And that's that's what Team Recovery was. We developed. We we reached out non -profit. to non It was a nonprofit. Yeah, we started that in treatment, like while we were in treatment. Like I would leave group and go home and like fill out the the IRS paperwork for a five hundred one c three. Like it was just like like that's I was so focused on achieving things you know and just went again went back to that same like freshman year energy i can do anything that i want to do i can be a major league baseball player i can get straight a's i can do all this but maybe not in a school setting anymore like why can't i have a nonprofit? why can't i develop a legit organization why can't i get people to join my board of directors so who cares if i have 30 days clean you know who cares if i have whatever i'm still going to do it and, we, and that's what we did. And we started to do all those things, speaking at schools. And we held a family group there at the treatment center that we were at. And 60 family members came to the first one. Wow. Um, and it just it grew and it took off into a lot of other things. Just continued to grow and grow and grow. Do you feel like that was part of what helped you stay straight? Oh, yeah. Like being involved like that? I mean, it does kind of put this ad added, I don't want to say pressure, but added expectation on mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. to to stay straight right mm -hmm. oh yeah Pre pressure is a is a perfect explanation of it it's like how, how can i i'm not going to be a hypocrite i can't like say all these things and then just go use now can't do that there's people right. that need me there's people that are relying on me so it was it was good for me though i'd see family members i'd see um i got to see like what my mom 
my mom was, you know, semi-happy now at this point. She was still a little bit nervous. But um, I'd see moms coming into these family support groups that still, like, were still struggling over their son who was still using. And that was a very sobering... To be sober and to see a mom struggle with their son is a completely different perspective. And it was like, oh, my God, this poor lady. Like, that's what I was doing to my mom? Oh, I can't go back out there and do this to her all over again. So all that service work, it was, I don't even think we knew how much good it was going to do, but it, it absolutely helped me stay sober. There's no doubt about it. All the other times that you had dealt with your mom, you had been high. High, yeah. So it really, it's almost like talking to a wall when you're talking to somebody who is mm-hmm. under the influence, right? Yeah, absolutely. My, my mom's crying in front of me, like begging me to stop gripping that $20 bill that I'm begging her for and I'm, I'm not hearing the words that she's saying I, I'm just looking at that $20 bill that she's about to give to me you know like that okay cool thank you can, can we move on here like thank you okay love you bye like that's all it was that's all it was and it's so sad to think of it that way have and, you I know part of the recovery process in a lot of programs is that you make amends mm-hmm. for things that you have done to people you must have had some relationships to repair. It was that part of your process. It's still part of the process, yeah. you know. And I think that some relationships um, might be a lifelong process, and they should be. Um, but yeah, the significant ones: um, my son, my uh, my ex-wife now, Jackson's mom, and my mom. You know, and then just like distant family and my sister and just so many people. But those ones took time. The immediate ones, they took time. I didn't get to see my son for the first year. I couldn't even talk to him of sobriety. She was like, listen, you've said you're going to do this over and over again. Show me and maybe we'll start having some. Because I'm not going to let you back into Jackson's life and then have you leave again. You're not going to play with his emotions like that. So show me you're serious and go through the court process. You know, like you're going to have to fight for it. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. Previous attempts, I would have argued with that. Mm-hmm. It's your fault. What do you mean? What do you mean you're not going to let me see my son? And this time, again, just different perspective. Okay, that's fair. I don't blame you for that. I appreciate you. Thank you for communicating. I'll get it taken care of. And I literally went down and woke up my friend Josh Dressel, uh, who's the co-founder of Team Recovery. He was taking a nap in the recovery house. And I was like, Josh, we got to get my son back. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, we're going to go see him? And he's like, and I was like, no, I, I need you to take me down to the courthouse so I can fill out paperwork. He's like, all right, man. And like, I like, I'll never forget that day. He took me down there cause he had a car and I didn't. And, um, he took me down there. We filled out that paperwork and submitted it. And that was like the starting point. And it took a year to get to that point where I had a supervised visit with Jackson. You know, like that's the way that the court wanted to do it couldn't even see him on my own we had to go to like a neutral location where I was with him but there was like a court person there like watching us and um that was hard (laughs) that was really really hard uh because that's like all I think about my dad and how good of a dad he was and um like my son is all I care about in this life you know like that's how I was taught to be like you be a de- you be a father for your kids. You show that you love them. You like make them look up to you. You want to be so good that they want to be like you. So it was just really hard um, to be like, hey son, hey court person, you know, like how are you? And and, and then be like, all right, our hour's up. We got to go. 
But I knew that if I kept doing it, I'd, you know, I'd get them back. And in your sobriety, you're seeing things a lot differently, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you always loved him, but there was something else that was uh, stronger pulling you in a different yeah. direction. And now you didn't have that. Yeah. No, I mean, I was, I was clear-headed. I was, I was focused. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I was capable of. I, the conf- like, I just had to, to um, I guess I had to hit my, my head against the wall enough times to figure out that there is no other way to successfully use drugs. I always wanted to do it Matt's way again. I always wanted to like at least drink, at least smoke, at least like even on maybe New Year's. Once a year I'll drink or something, you know? And that is just not reality for a person like me. And it, thank God I survived figuring out and finding that evidence. Um, I'm fully convinced that to drink or use any mood or mind altering substance for somebody like me is to die. Like that's just, I'm working on dying if I do that kind of stuff. So yeah, one thing leads to another. Always. Also, right. Always. At, or at least that has been your experience. Um, when did team recovery, so you were doing team recovery, mm-hmm. taking phone calls at all hours of the day and night from people. So um, obviously that's not sustainable as a, you know, person for you to be working that full time and then trying to support yourself yeah. um, doing something. But you have been able to turn your experience into something pretty miraculous as far as I'm concerned. So tell me about Midwest Recovery Center. Yeah, so I I knew that, I knew that, and I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew something felt right about team recovery. It was just pure. It was, it was, it was keeping me clean. It was helping others stay clean and it was serving the community with like, the community needed it so bad. Um, so I just knew that we had to keep doing it. And it was more than full-time. Like, I wasn't working. Yeah. I had everything I needed at Zeph. You know, I got my counseling. I got treatment. I had three meals a day. And I had a warm place to sleep. My, I was working on the process to get my son. I was working on a relationship with my mom. Like, I, at that point, that's all I needed. I didn't need to rush anything else. I didn't want to work. I wanted to be able to just volunteer. I was, I was volunteering 80 hours a week. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just insane how much work we were doing. And... Um, I knew that it would turn into something. I didn't know what, but I just knew that it would turn into something. We were just presented with a really good opportunity. I was speaking actually in, in uh, Worcester, Ohio at an event, and some guy came up to me, and he was like, that was the best presentation I've ever heard. He's like, how long have you been doing this? And I was like, I'm four months clean. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? <laughs> You're four months clean? He's like, I thought that you had been doing this for decades. What are you t- Like, what the heck is going on? And long story short, he tried to he tried to hire me, and I was like, I appreciate it, but I I'm not really like looking to get into the treatment industry, and I especially don't want to like feed somebody else's treatment center. You know, like that's not why I'm doing this. I care about my city. I care about Toledo, and I like you're an out of state place. I don't really, you know, I'm not going to take people from Toledo and send them to another state. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm interested in doing. And um, he was like, well, what are you interested in doing? Let's follow up, have a conversation, get lunch, whatever. So um, I did fly out and meet him at his treatment center. And he was like, what do I have to do to hire you? And I was like, did you? I, I'm flattered. Really, I am. But it's, I, it's not going to happen. So if you want to work together, um, you can help me start a treatment center in Toledo. And I, and I, I thought he was going to be like, yeah, right, man. You know, He called me the next Monday. That was on a Friday. He called me on Monday. 
He's like, I need you to start looking for buildings that are zoned this way, this many square feet, this type of, you know, special use and all this stuff. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking? I'm an IOP, dude. I got to go do, like, group homework. I don't, <laughs> what are you talking about buildings and zoning? I don't know what that means. I've never done that. He's like, well, you want a treatment center in Toledo, then you better figure it out. I will help you start it if you do the legwork. And it just went back to the same thing. Like, can I do this? Am I capable of it? I've overcome some things in my life. You know, losing my losing my... My dad and, 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 and being really good at a lot of things and being really bad at a lot of things and surviving those and, and, and now being like pretty good at team recovery, developing a nonprofit, making it work, helping the community. Can I do this? And just I wasn't going to say no. You know, I was like, look, I got to take a shot at it. So he worked on the funding component. I worked on the community component and the real estate. And I mean, I, I, named it i developed the logo i built the first website like all this while i'm in treatment while i'm at zap center <laughs> you know like putting this whole business plan together and um and it, and it happened we got a nationally accredited state licensed facility for all levels of care we take you know all insurances medicaid and commercial we opened in 2017 we had 22 beds I think I remember you know people coming out and telling us you're crazy man like you have a year clean now year and a half you don't know what you're doing you've never you had to be a little nervous about that too though Matt because that I mean you know your track record to that point had not been great I was very nervous right I mean there's no doubt there was a ton of in your mind though were you just determined I'm gonna stay clean like was there a I mean what was it that made you think I can be a help to all of these people and I can stay the course. I, I really don't know how to answer. I think it was honestly just a, I had never really had a relationship with God. I was raised Catholic and kind of became like, certainly not atheist. I never believed that there wasn't a God, but I just kind of lost faith in, in God. And like, if there is a God, why, why would he's out there, but he doesn't care about me. That was mm-hmm. kind of where I was. And, um, when I, when I got sober, developing that relationship with my higher power was something that my sponsor helped me do. And that, that relationship with him that I nurtured through prayer and meditation that I continue, and then that relationship has evolved too in, in my recovery. Um, I didn't even know how to like pray when I first got, I didn't really, I was like, how do you have a conversation with God? Something inside of me. Like, and I call that God, like that's God inside me just telling me to keep going. Like there's been so many points in my life where I should, like I could just stop. I could have easily just pulled that trigger. I could have easily just stayed out there. I could have easily just done some crazy crime that would have landed me in prison. I could have easily, you know, not fought for my son. I, there's so many things I could have just taken the easy road and not done it. But there's something inside of me that I can't settle. Like if I have the ability to, to go pro, I'm going pro. I have the ability to open a business, I'm opening a business. If I have the ability to like, you give me an opportunity, I'm going to do it and I'm gonna do it better than anybody else. That's just the mentality that I have. I don't know if it came from St. Francis, I don't know if it came from my dad or sports or college sports or what, but that, like the God thing, that's what I, that's that's how I view God works in my life is he just tells me to keep going. You can't stop now. You are also a great example to the people that come to Midwest Recovery, obviously, you mm-hmm. know, for treatment because, I mean, 27 times, mm-hmm. you know, 
you went back after it. Mm -hmm. And for them to see that has to give them hope. Does mm -hmm. that put a pressure or a spotlight on you that is uncomfortable or you're comfortable with that? I think I'm comfortable with it. You know, I've never been uncomfortable with it. You know, and I still go to meetings. You know, I still go to the same meetings that somebody with, with seven days clean goes to. Um, I still do all the volunteer work that somebody, you know, that should be getting into volunteer work should be doing. Like, that stuff that helped me get and stay sober is not something that I'm like, oh, I'm good now. I don't need to do that anymore. Like, that, that stuff will, you know, one day at a time hopefully always be part of my life. And I am never too good to, to do those types of things. You know, I, I don't forget where I came from. And I don't want to forget where I came from. I know what helped me. I know what helped other people. And it's very simple stuff. You know, it's not a lot. It's, it's, it's being of service and doing things with the right intentions and just not using. Like, that's really what it comes down to and having some fun while you're doing it. And, and, I, and I don't ever want to stop doing that. Like, when I go in, like, I'm dressed up today. This is dressed up, honestly. I'm wearing khakis and a polo shirt. Most of the time, I go into the office in a T-shirt and jeans. You know, like, 500 employees now, 18 locations. Like, I could be wearing a suit and tie if I wanted to. But I don't want to. Yes, you just said 500 employees and 18 locations mm -hmm. continuing to grow. You have group yeah. homes, you have inpatient, yeah. you have outpatient services that you do. Mm -hmm. This has been something that has really grown. Are you all in Ohio? All of the... Yes. So, yes. so I, everything that I am over is in Ohio. Now, the gentleman that I talked to you about that helped me start the Ohio facilities has, has, has taken the whole umbrella and grown it to other states, but that's not anything that I oversee and I have anything to do with. We're part of a, of a large group now that has 17 treatment centers in uh, seven states. So it's just, I mean, it's just, it's, we teach each other, we help each other, we learn off of each other, but obviously every state is completely different. The need is different. The insurance policies are different. The state policies are different, all that stuff. The treatment centers themselves are different, but um, you know, Ohio continues to set the standards for all the other treatment centers under our umbrella organization. And, and that's something that I'm really proud of. You know, like when we open up in another state, that state comes to Ohio to train. Like we show them what treatment is. We show them how, how we do this. It's, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, the fact that I got clean in 2015, started officially uh, well, started working on team recovery in 15 while I was in treatment. 16, it became a nonprofit. 17, we got the treatment center started. And here we are in 21 with, I mean, we started with 22 beds in 2017. We now have like 400 beds. We're the, we're the largest behavioral health agency in the state when we, when we talk about beds. That's insane to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm like, I, sometimes I still have to laugh at that. That is so crazy. Like, that's happening because we're good. That's happening because like we put everything in because we this is life or death to us. I'm not just like some guy that got a, a double masters that wanted to start a, a business treatment center. Like that's not what this is to us. This is so much more and we put so much more into it and the clients feel that and the families feel that and the community feels that. Community stakeholders, drug courts, police officers, like they all they all they walk in and they're like, Wow, this is really nice. Wow. Oh, you're communicating the, the client's progress to us? Thank you. I appreciate it. Like, do we just go above and beyond to be what the community needs us to be? And because of that, it's not because, like we're not worried about profit margins. We're not focusing on all that stuff and cutting costs. We're doing what's best for the client. And, and it might 
minimize our profit margins, but that's okay. It's not why we did it. Who cares? The, the, the money will come. That's not why we're doing this. We do what's right for the client without thinking about profit margins. And the growth has been so insane. It just blows my mind when you do what's right. When you, I'm sure you must have success measures that you look at as far as people staying sober after mm -hmm. treatment there. Have you had people come back to you a second, a third oh, time, yeah. you know, like uh, kind of like your story yeah. and, and what do you say to those people or, you know, what is, what is the <laughs> message that you can give to those people or those families? I've gotten, I've gotten completely taken out of business operations at Midwest because I have such a soft heart. I, I see people coming back and I'm like, what do you mean you're going to say no? Like, cause we have a, a company policy and it, and it makes sense at some point you have to see if what you're doing to this person is sort of enabling them. Do they know that they can go use and always come back for a bed at Midwest? Do they, like, if they know that, then maybe by accepting them again, we're actually doing them a disservice. Right. So I mean, you did that. That's actually. what I did. And, yeah. that, and that's why it's hard for me to get right with that. You know, and, yeah. and the, you know, medical comes into play, clinical comes into play. I'm neither. So we, I have people that, have, that do have those master's degree and, and that are doctors that are saying, Matt, we can't bring this person back again. We're enabling them. Like it's a, we, they've hit the limit of admissions per year, according to our our company. This is our company standards, and I'm like, but he, what if this is the time? Like, what if what if this is his time? He could be me, you know. Like, what if somebody would have said no to me? What if Zeph didn't let me in? I'd been there 15 times. I would we would none of us would be in this office today. Right. And it just so because of that, I've gotten completely removed. I don't get to see those decisions anymore. Mm. It, you never know when it's going to be someone's last time. So we do. We, you know, there's never any judgment. A lot of our staff is in recovery, um, and and that's really good for the clients too. Like there's a relatability there, and like an empathy that when people walk in, like they know that we're no different from them, and they can be our coworkers one day. Who, who knows? They might open up their own treatment center, like, and I would root them on from from the mountaintops. That would be so cool. Is there anything in you that um, doing this kind of work? pulls you back in any way or makes you think, you know, is it healthy for you to be helping people recover yeah. when you had such a hard 10 years and mm -hmm. does it pull you back into that dark time to have to share that with people and think about that? And yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. And it pulls me back in a good way. It, Cause even if I am, I'm, I, I don't get, I don't get to see clients that much very, uh, very often anymore and I, I'm not on a day-to-day -day operations inside uh, the care of what you know the clients are receiving but I still have to go into the buildings and I see people all the time on day one two three four five of treatment and all you have to do is look at somebody and it takes you back right away up to I'm one bad decision away from from being right there again mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that's a good thing for me um, it's important for people in recovery, and I see it all the time, to mix up their job with their recovery. Just because you work in treatment, that can't get confused with your program of recovery, right? Like, I go to work, and I, wor and I work to help people, but that's not where it ends. Like, when I go home, I still have to work the principles of, of 12 steps. I still have to work with sponsees. I still have to call my sponsor, and when 
type life gets tough. I still have to go to meetings. You know, like I don't get to just say, hey, I'm helping people at work. So that's my program. Mm -hmm. Like that is not my program. Yeah, that is, keeping that it is separate. work. They are two separate things. So, and a lot of people confuse that and they mm -hmm. say, you know what? I'm helping people from nine to five. I'm good. And all of a sudden they're a client again in the treatment center. That's so interesting. It is. Uh, did you ever, have you ever gone back to your baseball coach? Have you ever had a conversation with him since you've been no. sober? No, I don't, I would love to though. I would love to. There's so many people that I would love to like see again. I'd love to see the doctors that saved me when I overdosed at ProMedica. I would love to see the firefighters that Narcaned me, you know, in my apartment. I, there's, there's, I'd love to talk to my coach. I would love to be able to do those in like documentary type style or even a podcast or something like that. But no, I haven't, I haven't gotten to talk to him. I wish I could. What are you hoping that people in Midwest Recovery Center who encounter you, but also out in the community who encounter you, what are you hoping that they take away from their interactions with you and from you sharing your story with them? Addiction can happen to anybody. And just because it happens to you or your loved one or whoever it might be, it does not make them a bad person. You know, like, and I hope that that's what people are processing when they're listening to me speak. Like, wow, this guy had a good life. You know, it sounds, you know, pretty educated. Sounds like he's got his life together now. And, um, but like the stuff that he was doing, like that's what I would, that's what I would associate with a bad person. Mm -hmm. And I hope that my my story can help change their perception of addiction. Say, you know what? Maybe this isn't a bad person needing to become good type of problem that we're dealing with. I now understand that addicts are sick. They have like an it that like they need treatment in order to become well. They're not bad. I know I'm not a bad person. Like, I believe that, that addicts are all inherently good people. They're just really sick. And it could be because their dad died. You know, it could be because something happened. It could be because, you know, they got made fun of in third grade. Like, it could be because of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, at some point, things happen to all of us. And if we don't know how to process it at that time, it turns into another thing. And then it turns into another thing. And now all of a sudden we're attaching to something else that's unhealthy for us. And it just takes one bad decision to take someone down the wrong road. And there's just so much judgment that goes on with people. We live in a very superficial, competitive world. And we're all so much more alike than we all different than we are different. We all have problems. And instead of, you know, judging somebody else and saying those problems aren't my problems, just realizing, you know, maybe that person just needs like uh, I believe in you or can I help you with anything? Or just a smile. Understanding that addict, breaking the stigma. That's what I hope happens when having an, an interaction with me. I hope people are like, you know what? That, that, that addict guy, he's a pretty good guy. Pretty smart guy. I guess addicts can change and get better. And they're not bad people. Are you still an addict? Do you still call yourself an addict? Is that, yes. is that proper? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. once an addict, always an addict kind of thing? Uh, that is that is what I believe. And there's a lot of you know controversy around that. But I... Um, that's not how I identify. Like, I am so much more than that. Yes. Um, but it's a reminder to me that I can't do that stuff. You know, like, it's all, it's within me. The pilot light is on. And all I got to do is fuel it up a little bit and mm -hmm. it's going to explode. It's there. And it'll, it'll never go away. It could be 35, 50, 70 years from now. 
have another beer or, or you know, snort another line, like I will pick up right where I left off. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's how, that's part of how I recognize that and, and always remember it. My name's Matt, I'm an addict. That's how I introduce myself in, you know, support group meetings. You have this wonderful thriving business now where you are helping people and putting other people on the right path. You have a fiance, mm-hmm. you have a great relationship with your son, mm-hmm. you have a lot of really positive, wonderful things going on in your life. What would you say to Matt Bell from 2014, mm-hmm. who was sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and looking for the next hit in this moment. Mm -hmm. I had a dream about that. I had a dream about this like literally three weeks ago. You have no idea how good it can be. Like you just have no idea. You truly don't know. And it's not hard to get there. Like the only thing you have to do perfect is not use. Everything else, it's life, man. Like we get to mess up and make mistakes. Like, addict or not, you know, person in recovery or not, we, we learn from life. We make mistakes sometimes. You know, we make bad decisions. We, you know, whatever. We get into arguments. All this stuff, it happens. Happens in life. The only thing I have to do right is not put drugs and alcohol into my system. And we that was that's so easy. You know, like, that's all I got to do? Are you kidding me? That's all I got to do? And you're telling me that this life can be here, whatever I want, if you work hard enough? I, I, I was at a meeting talking to probably 80 people in recovery, early recovery, a few weeks ago. It's like, you guys, like, man, if you all just knew, like, if you could fast forward, if I could show you, if I could just give you a picture, a snapshot of what your life could be like in six years, you wouldn't even think about using again. Like, it wouldn't even be an option. Like, you would, you would work so hard to not do it. Like, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you, like, just know that that's, that's real. You can get that. It's not even like, could this happen again? Like, I think about it like baseball. I was going to go pro, and I believe that. I am going to own another building. I'm going to do this, whatever it is. Like, that's not, uh, it's not ifs anymore. You work hard enough, you'll get it. Just because you're an addict or a recovering alcoholic doesn't mean you can't go achieve your dreams. And that Matt Bell in 2014 could never even have imagined all of this stuff that you have right now, right? I, honestly, when I got clean, I wanted, uh, I just wanted to like have a job. That's all I really wanted. Like see my son again and just like work a nine to five. Like, and I thought that that would have been, and I would have been happy with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I wanted a pair of shoes, you know, I wanted a new pair of shoes. I wanted to get a vehicle and maybe have an apartment or something like that and just be able to see my son and work just like simple. Like I just wanted to be happy and just like be a normal person. And I, I was like underselling it you know like I was shooting I was selling myself way short it's just crazy in 2014 if you I, ha, I had a dream about this I, I I was in treatment and there was like this person it was like a program where you could um, you could you could see like a, a, a one minute v- a video of what your life was going to be like in six years and I was like okay I'll take a look and I like pulled into this house and I was like there's no way this Maybe I'm working here. Like, what am I doing on this property? Am I cutting their grass? Am I working for a lawn company that's cutting their grass? Like, what is this house? Why am I here? So then, like, it was like a video tour. It, like, went into the garage, and I was like, wow, there's some nice cars here. Definitely not mine, though. Like, um, maybe I'm here to clean their house or something. And and there was I noticed, like, golf clubs. And I was like, 
I don't. I like golf, but I don't like golf that much. Those aren't my golf clubs. And I went into the house, and I saw like a cat, and it's beautiful inside this house. And I was like, wow, this person, whoever this is, like I'm interested to see like why I'm here and what I'm doing with this person. And I was like looking around, and I saw like a boy's room that was like 10 years old, and I could see like sports stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, my son would be about 10 years old in six years. Is that his room? Like, do I have a house with my my son has his own room in it? And then it like went back down to the master bedroom and there was a picture of like me and my son and my fiance on the wall. And I was like, oh my God, that's me on the wall. That's my house. This is going to be me in six years. Are you kidding me? This is the coolest dream. And, and uh, like if, if there was a way to do that and show people early on, like you can have this, you can have whatever you want. You have no idea what you're capable of. People really don't know. I didn't know. I knew I could do some things. I knew I could, I could be happy. But when we put our minds to it, and I mean, surviving an addiction is very hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to wake up homeless with zero dollars, find a way to make money, get to that resource to make money, turn that whatever item it is that you stole into currency, and then get back to a drug dealer and turn it into drugs. You know, like that's a lot of work all day. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And if you can just take that half of that energy and put it into something good, do whatever you want, truly, whatever you want. And I hear people say that all the time, like, oh, you can be whatever you want to be. I'm saying that because it's true. Yeah. No. You're Well, you're a living example of that. Yeah, thank you. And really a living miracle. Yeah, I, I believe that. Matt went to rehab for his drug addiction and relapsed 27 times before he finally got clean. How many of us would give ourselves 28 chances at something? Matt's journey shows us that drug addiction can happen to anyone, but recovery is also possible as long as we have hope. Matt believes he got clean because on that 28th time, no one was forcing him to get help. He finally wanted it for himself. Drug addiction is an illness. Matt uses his experience to help others through his business, Midwest Recovery Center, but also his nonprofit, Team Recovery. If you live in Ohio and know someone who needs help, Team Recovery is a great resource 24 hours a day. You can call them at 419-561-5433. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a national helpline available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Sometimes things look bleak and we can't even imagine what might lie ahead for us in the future. But as Matt says, there are so many good things to live for so many good things. If you were inspired by Matt's journey on this episode of Just a Moment, or know someone who might benefit from his story, please share this episode and subscribe. I have many more stories to share with you in just a moment.